Welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Today we're beginning a new fall series. We're calling it Tremors, and the subtitle is The World is Shaking. Kind of a heavy thing to come back to. Guess the sabbatical is over for me. But I love the title. I had nothing to do with putting this together, but I love the title. I love the concept. I love the series, and I especially love the invitation and the challenge to us as a congregation to step toward and into some of the uncertainties and complexities swirling around in our culture these days. A week ago Friday, I boarded a train in a little town called Sturdivant, Wisconsin. I rode it to Chicago, then I hopped on the California Zephyr train and rode it from Chicago to Sacramento. It was an end of sabbatical solo adventure. Absolutely wonderful time. And on the short leg from Sturdivant to Chicago, I sat next to a guy and we started talking. And he is a rapper and a promoter of rap concerts. So right away, we had a lot in common. <laughs> started rapping on my sabbatical. I'm kidding. In the course of our discussion, he told me about his family and some of the challenges he was facing in those relationships. And then he told me he was a Muslim. And then he asked me what I did. And I said, well, I'm a Christian pastor. And right there, on the spot, on the train, from Sturdivant to Chicago, a tremor occurred. And I felt the world shake just a little bit. Because... He was a Muslim. I was a Christian. And what baffled him and bothered him was why our different faiths had to cause such tension and fracture. And he launched right into it. And we talked about this for a half an hour, like adults, with respect for each other. We processed what has been happening in our world. We processed some of the dividing lines that get erected at the mere mention of Muslim and Christian, for as an example. Then we exchanged phone numbers when the train ride was over. And I now have a friend who is a rapping Muslim. <laughs> and he has a friend who's a rapping pastor. <laughs> as you well know, for several years, our nation and our culture has been tremoring. Major shifts have been occurring In society, and tensions have been rising, and fractures have been deepening. And despite efforts towards civility and mutual respect, things like anger, antagonism, and division continue to drive a wedge between people and in our culture. And as this happens, ever so gradually, it seems to me, and it seems to us, our culture is moving away from an and posture and moving toward a versus posture, V-E-R-S-U-S, away from an and posture and toward an against posture. Things that were once options based on one's discernment or preference or conviction have now become oppositional. Instead of this or that, it's this versus that. Politics being the one arena where this has been happening at the speed of light. 
Republicans and Democrats from years gone by has become this party versus that party. And I know I'm oversimplifying, and I know there are dozens of, yeah, but whatabouts running through our minds right now. We could explore all those. Clearly, just to say it, there are real differences that create natural disagreements and divisions between groups of people. We're not pretending there aren't differences, and we're not pretending that sometimes they're insurmountable differences, because they are. My new rapper friend and I have vastly different beliefs about God and faith and life and love. But keeping the focus narrow for our purposes in this series versus, it seems to us, has nearly replaced and. Fighting has nearly replaced basic kindness toward those who see it differently. These days, it sometimes feels like the new peer pressure says, quote, you don't really hold a conviction unless you fight against those who don't, especially on social media. So the and is fading and the verses is growing. And we think it's vital for Christ followers to resist the temptation of anger and antagonism and do the hard work of thinking carefully and deeply about these issues and do the hard work of learning how to discuss these things in ways that reflect the heart and character of Jesus. And it is hard work. It's extremely messy. It doesn't just fit in some neat category. We have to engage. So today we're considering the topic as we get started in this of character and leadership. Not character or leadership. Not character versus leadership. But character and leadership. There was a time not very long ago when these two things were almost inseparable. Studies were done I, I looked at one the other day, but I remember this back in the mid-2000s and early 2000s. Studies would be done by places like Harvard, and they'd come out with these things. The best way to be an effective leader is to have high character. So the best leaders in politics, sports, education, business, religion were people of high character. They weren't perfect. They weren't spotless. They weren't prudish. But they were people who valued certain virtues that were generally understood to be good. Things like humility, mutual respect, kindness, other-centeredness, being truthful in your leadership. But today, there seems to have developed more of an either-or mindset about character and leadership. It's not clear-cut, but today it's almost as though it's kind of understood, wink-wink, that a leader who's going to get anything done has to kind of do some shady stuff underneath the table. And again, I'm not suggesting that things have devolved to the point where it's full-blown character versus leadership. I'm not saying that. Or character or leadership. The categories are not that clean. But we're living in a time where there is less clarity on what constitutes good character. We're living in a time when the importance of character is sometimes downplayed in the interest of an outcome we think is crucial. We are living in a time where the attitude increasingly seems to be something along the lines of, well, character would be a nice thing for a leader to have, but there are pressing issues to resolve. 
So leadership character would be nice, but leadership competence is essential. And yet, as we all know, there's an infamous list of scandals that were first birthed in the heart of some leader who thought the outcome was the top priority. I'll, say, I'll, I'll name them, and you'll know what at least some of them are. Enron, Willow Creek, the Houston Astros, the college admissions bribery scandal, Watergate. And just with that quick list, the big arenas of life, politics, education, sports, religion, and business are all represented in this short Hall of Shame list. And the ultimate question we're struggling with today is what does all this mean for those who profess allegiance to Jesus Christ? How does the tension, if we can call it that, between character and leadership get worked out in the real situations we face every day or week? What if you work for a skillful leader who lacks character? Should you quit, confront, just ignore Or how about this? How do character and leadership shape our voting choices? Should they shape our voting choices? I mean, it's nice to talk about these things in the benign environment of a church service. But how do they play out in real life? See, when we start getting into the real life implications of these things, things get real messy real quick, because it's not a snap-quick answer. But if the Bible is what it claims to be, that is, not a book of rigid rules to follow, or not a book that becomes a weapon to wield to defend a position, if the Bible is what it claims to be, wisdom from God about real life and how to live it the best way possible, then we have to press into these things and ask God to help us If the Christian life is a vibrant and authentic way of living instead of a dead set of stipulations to keep us out of hell, then we have to press into these things and ask God to help us and embrace the messiness along the way, knowing we're not going to get it all sorted out so we can say, well, this fits over here on this shelf and this fits over there on that shelf. So what does the Bible actually say? about character and leadership. And we could go into all sorts of examples of good character, not so good character. We could go into all sorts of verses that emphasize the importance of character in leaders. But the one verse that jumps out to me that says it all is Proverbs 4 and verse 23. And it says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Now, that applies to all who are interested in living the way God intends. But if we bring this to the issue of leadership, it's an excellent lens by which to start having this conversation. Above all else, leader, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. See, in the Bible, the heart is what we could call the control center for every aspect of our lives. Choices, thoughts, feelings, words, responses, reactions, attitudes, judgments, all of it, according to the Bible, flows out of our heart, our interior self. So according to the Bible, the essence of who we are is our inner self, our heart. And everything 
about us starts within us. So everything about leadership starts within us. And this is why the proverb says, above all else, guard your heart. Because everything you do flows from it. Priority number one, protect your heart. Be mindful of your inner life. Because everything that comes out of you starts within you. Imagine taking a lens like this to have the leadership conversation. See, the Bible's perspective on leadership is really quite clear. There really is no gray. Character is at the top of the list. Character is ranked number one. Let's put it this way. Leadership done God's way begins with character. A heart oriented toward God and toward what is good is an essential and non-negotiable component of leadership. No question, no exception. Now, character does not mean perfection. Doesn't mean spotlessness. It means a heart, an inner life that brings forth what the Bible calls good fruit And the Bible says things like patience, gentleness, kindness, compassion, mercy, love, self-control, self-forgetfulness, humility, truth-telling, grace-giving, forgiveness are some of the good fruit. That's not my list. That's all over the pages of the Bible. A guy named Parker Palmer wrote a book called Leading from Within. He wrote these words. A leader is a person who must take responsibility for what's going on inside of him or herself. Inside his or her consciousness. Lest the act of leadership create more harm than good. That's a powerful way of describing a leader. A leader is a person who must take special responsibility for what's going on inside of him or herself. I kept bumping into this theme of character and leadership during my sabbatical. Not because this was on the docket as a series. I didn't even know it was on the docket as a series. But I thought about this often as it related to me and to my leadership here at our church. And part of why... This sabbatical was important is because I not only wanted, but I needed time to pay attention to what was going on within me when I wasn't speaking or when I wasn't leading, when I wasn't visible, when I wasn't making decisions, when I wasn't, quote, important. And I kept running into this theme of character and leadership. What's happening within me? How am I doing with such and such? How does it feel to be out of this loop with all these things happening and I have nothing to do with it? That's an attentiveness to where am I at in my inner world? Why does it matter? Because whatever is in that inner world, according to Proverbs 4.23, is going to find its way out into the external world through my mouth through my attitude, through my response, through my thoughts, through my feelings, through all sorts of things. But it's going to come out of me 
if it is in me. Hence the importance of paying attention. I kept running into this theme in some of the books I read and in some of the conversations I had and in some of the places I visited during my sabbatical. So this is about to get weird. So if you want to leave, grab a cookie and we'll see you next week. But for many years, I have been intrigued by Richard Nixon. Fascinated is probably a better word. Obsessed is probably the more authentic word. I've read a bunch about him. I've listened to most of his speeches. I've listened to all sorts of interviews with him way too many times. And at times, my wife and my children have been concerned about my Nixon fixation. Over my sabbatical, I read a book about Nixon and Watergate. Not insignificantly, the title of the book was King Richard. Kind of gives you a bit of a picture of who he was and perhaps ways of describing him. One of my sabbatical excursions was spending two days in the Nixon Library and Museum down in beautiful Yorba Linda, California, Nixon's birthplace. I've wanted to do this for years. I planned to go a couple years ago, but then COVID hit, they shut it down. So one of my excursions, in fact, the first excursion I had, I left Folsom. Uh, My last Sunday here was June 5th, as I recall, and I left Folsom on June 8th by myself, and drove to Yorba Linda. Now, as a side note, when Julie and I were planning out the sabbatical, we were at this restaurant one night, Iron Horse, and she asked what things I wanted to do when we were writing all this stuff down, and I told her I wanted to visit Nixon's library and museum, and she said, oh, maybe I'll join you. I said, okay, I'm going to spend two days there. I remember she was sitting next to me on the same side of the table, and right when I said I'm going to spend two days there, I could feel her side eye looking at me. Kind of like this. Two days, she said. Two days. And then she said, and I quote, maybe I'll just meet you after in San Diego. (laughs) Well, the two days I spent at the Nixon Library were remarkable. I could tell the docents who wander around such places knew that in me, they had a fish on. (laughs) They wouldn't leave me alone. I strolled the place reading nearly every plaque and every exhibit. And the docents couldn't resist sharing their little insider tidbits with me about Nixon, confirming to me that Julie would not have enjoyed this experience at all. One reason Nixon has always fascinated me is that his character could not keep up with his position. His power exceeded the limits of his character, and ultimately, his lack of character ruined him and ruined his presidency. On my sabbatical, I also read a biography of Eugene Peterson. Interestingly, the biography is called A Burning in My Bones. Book on Nixon's called King Richard. Book on Eugene Peterson's called A Burning in My Bones. You probably know who Richard Nixon was, maybe not Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson was a pastor for about 28 years and a prolific author, probably most well-known for writing the message version of the Bible that we refer to often here at Oak Hills. In the circles of pastors and Christian leaders, you say Eugene Peterson, and people kind of melt at the name. 
as I said, his biography is called A Burning in My Bones. It's a marvelous book. I highly recommend it. And page after page reveal why people melt at the mention of Eugene Peterson. Richard Nixon and Eugene Peterson were both influential leaders. Both were very intelligent. Both were highly educated. Both were extremely well-read. Both were insecure. Both were flawed. Both were famous, though, to different degrees. Neither of them was perfect or even close to it. Both said and did things they regretted. So what was the ultimate difference between these two leaders? The difference was their character. The quality of their inner life was vastly different. Nixon was constantly at the mercy of his relentless insecurities. His heart was full of contempt and rage toward any and all who crossed him in any real or perceived way. He attacked his enemies. He called them belittling names. Listening to Nixon talk about his enemies is like listening to a fifth grader talk about some kid he doesn't like. And that's all hard stuff. That all has to do with character. Everything you do that flows out of you starts within you. Nixon nurtured anger. He nurtured antagonism within his heart. He craved power and he craved importance. And he attacked anyone who stood in his path to getting them. Palmer's words again, a leader is a person who must take special responsibility for what's going on inside of him or herself, inside his or her consciousness, lest the act of leadership create more harm than good. Richard Nixon was a skillful leader, but he was not in touch with his inner world. He ignored his inner life. He didn't take responsibility for what was going on inside of him, and he created harm that did serious damage. Eugene Peterson was also insecure in ways that shocked me when I read the book. Peterson wondered if his ministry mattered in any meaningful way. He was worn down by congregants who picked apart his words or critiqued and chipped away at his ideas. He felt the wound of a distant father his entire life. And this wound scarred him and kept resurfacing even in his later years. But, and this is the crucial thing, Peterson was in touch with all of this. He knew his inner world. He admitted his insecurities and owned them. And he worked and prayed for God's power to change him. His heart was compassionate toward those who were broken because he knew his own brokenness. He had grace for those who had failed because he knew he had failed. He was gentle with his enemies because he knew that he was an enemy to some and had mistreated them. And most of all, Peterson valued the virtue of humility over just about every other virtue. And Peterson was an influential leader. So what's all this mean for us? What's it mean for our leadership, your leadership? What's it mean for the places where we work, the leaders we follow, or the people we lead? What's it mean for us as Christ followers in terms of our engagement in this character and leadership conversation that happens in our culture these days? A couple things I want to share, just three quick thoughts about character and leadership. The first is obvious. Leadership without character is bad leadership. 
Again, Parker Palmer, a leader is a person who must take special responsibility for what's going on inside of him or herself, lest the act of leadership create more harm than good. Not perfection, not spotlessness. Let's call it this. Nixonian denial of what's happening within gets us in deep trouble as a leader. So the best leaders are those who pay attention to their within world. What they say and do and think, their responses, their reactions, their anger, and their defensiveness drives them not to blame someone or something external, but it drives them into their own heart to understand the root of their reaction. Secondly, the best leaders are humble. I've come to believe the most important attribute of a good leader is humility, followed closely by vulnerability. I want to say that again. I'm not saying I'm right, but I've come to believe that the most important attribute of leadership is humility, followed closely by vulnerability. Paul says in Philippians 2 and verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Again, take this as a lens and put it up to leadership. Leaders do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And right after this, Paul says, let me make this simpler. Have the same humble mindset as Jesus. Christianity has been around for 2,000 years, and it has endured recessions and depressions and oppressions and wars and famines and droughts. And one of the most prominent attributes of the founder was and is humility. A couple weeks ago, I was in Minnesota with a pastor friend of mine, and I had a chance to meet one of his mentors. And if you assessed this mentor based on first impressions, you wouldn't think he was a leader. Over the course of the two hours we met, he asked me a bunch of questions about my life, about my family, about my ministry, and about my soul. And at one point, he spoke into me some very meaningful words. And when we left, I thought, wow, what a leader. But what made him so effective was not his dynamic personality or his big vision for how he was going to change the world. Rather, his humility is what made him so effective. Last thing, we need to engage in the struggle of sorting this out in the real contexts of our everyday lives. This is kind of where the rubber hits the road of this whole series that we're venturing into. How do we as Christians engage in this and sort this out in the real context and messy context of our everyday lives? See, we have to stop thinking character and leadership is the way it's done in the Christian or religious setting, but it won't work in business or in politics or in education. And we have to stop thinking this way Because it's simply not true. When I look at Esther, David, Paul, Ruth, Jesus, John the Baptist, Moses, I see great leaders who impacted all different aspects of the world by leading skillfully with a priority on character. 
And we need to be in this discussion with our friends and with our coworkers when this topic of character and leadership comes up. And I'm going to jump the gun here a little bit and maybe say what some of us have been thinking. I assure you, as elections begin to roll around, the issue of character and leadership is going to be in the air. It's going to be a conversation. And the question is, will we be in the conversation? Will we be representing an authentic and vibrant form of real Christianity that's not afraid of these conversations and not afraid to say loud and clear, character actually matters in our leaders, not perfection. But character and leadership, if we pull them apart, we end up with people like Richard Nixon. They have to stay together. I have a good friend in another state who is a significant business leader in his community. I was able to spend some time with this friend while I was gone. He's a man of faith. He's a man of character. And he has massive leadership responsibilities in his business job. And it's all real life stuff. It doesn't like you don't have little acronyms that answer everything. It's real life for this guy. So it's not a walk in the park. Challenges galore, heartaches all along the way. And at times, pressures to set character aside for the sake of leadership. But here's the thing we as Christ followers have to hold to tightly. When we as Christ followers set character aside for the sake of leadership, we're failing in our leadership. When we minimize the importance of character in our leadership, we're contradicting the way of Jesus as it relates to leadership. We can't cut these things in half. And we most certainly can't put character and leadership over here, run some yellow tape around it and say, well, this is the way it works over in the religious world. But politics is dog-eat-dog. Business, it won't work over there. Education, it doesn't work over there. Sports, it doesn't work over there. So you go ahead over here and live in your little Pollyannish world where character and leadership actually matter. When we do that, we are feeding a narrative that is not Christian. Character and leadership. Humility. Vulnerability. Other-centeredness. Truth-telling. And leadership. We need to be in these conversations. Sit in the mess of it all. Pray with others. Ask God for help so those who lead in business, in education, in politics, or wherever, are urged forward to lead with character. Well, this is the kind of thing we're going to step into over the next several weeks. These various tensions that at one time were an and, but are starting to become a versus or an against. And we hope to rediscover the and and continue to resist the against and the versus. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for the chance to delve into this important topic and to reflect on it for a few minutes. Continue to pray for this wonderful and beautiful church that we might be people who reflect authentic, vibrant, real Christianity. That we resist all forms of 
antagonism and anger and vitriol and division. And we stand graciously and gently upon your truth as we engage the world and as we navigate these many tremors and tensions. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.